Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. It's another fine day on P.I.'s Declassified. I hope this uh, program finds everybody healthy and well and avoiding uh, avoiding COVID, frankly. We're still dealing with that, but um, it's getting better. It looks like it's getting better across the country. But today I have Sarah Capelli. Sarah um, is an investigator, a private investigator in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm just going to have her introduce herself, and we're, I'm going to ask her a few questions. I find her bio, as I just told her offline, I find her bio fascinating. She's gone a lot of different places. So welcome to the show, Sarah Capelli. Thank you so much for having me. Great honor. Oh, it's great having you. Uh, you know, I just, I was laughing when I... Uh, read your bio because um, says you graduated with a bachelor's in sociology and a double minor in criminal justice and psychology, and then you were going to go to the New York Police Academy. And you, your goal was to co- become a privatized prison warden. That is yes, really unusual. <laughs> yes, I was uh, drawn towards um, the nature of criminals and. I wanted to make a difference in the country, and I was floored that uh, so many of our prisons were set up to cause the uh, offender to fail once paroled. You know, they don't have a requirement to get a GD um, and all kinds of other things that a private prison would be able to control as opposed to um, a public federal prison. It was my take on why I wanted to be a privatized warden. You know, uh, California, I believe, at the last I heard, outlawed uh, privatized prisons because there were so many problems. Yes, I'm aware that they were definitely uh, for-profit prisons. Um, My model was going to be having a business invest in the prison that would teach a trade. And one of the other problems, when someone has been released from prison after... um, the years spent, uh, they normally can't get a real job because they continually will have to check that they're a felon. So my model was going to then allow them to be hired by that uh, company that was adopted into our prison um, at the salary and the value of them without being a felon. So what happened? What? Why didn't you proceed so, with that? So um, while I was doing my internships um, in prisons, I was continually told that if I was to be taken seriously as a female, that I would need to have a law enforcement background. And I went to college at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And at the time, I had a girlfriend that was my roommate who was from New York City and from a family of cops. So I went ahead and applied to New York City Police Academy and got accepted. And I was sort of on the five-year college plan. (laughs) And so to graduate, I needed... um, my Spanish requirements up to date, so I ended up spending my last semester of college studying abroad in Spain. Oh, that's and nice. I may have, loved, <laughs> may have loved it so much that I stayed a little longer. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and then I uh, was supposed to go, as I said, fall um, academy for New York City um, class, 
And then I uh, kind of missed that until they keep it open for a year. And so I moved back to my home state of Omaha, Nebraska. And I was um, just by happenstance was at uh, a bar and a stranger walked up to me and said, I would like you to show up tomorrow for an interview. And he gave me a business card to reelect Senator Ben Nelson in in Nebraska. And I went and worked on his campaign. And I guess they say got bit by the political bug. And the rest was history. Wow. And then you spent 20 years working in in Congress with various uh, candidates. I started my career in Washington, D.C., so he did get reelected, um, but I was raised a Republican, and a blue dog is way different than a Democrat <laughs> from California. <laughs> okay. So I um, worked for two different members of Congress that are no longer in office, um, one from Omaha, Congressman Lee Terry, and then another from Arizona, Congressman Rick Renzi, and then I met my then-husband-to-be, and he's in politics as well. And then we got married, and he moved me to Richmond, Virginia. So then I was a full-time mom. I have three sons. And during that time, I did political work continually. Did fundraising for members of Congress, um, Eric Hanner in Virginia, down to local candidates, uh, ran their campaigns, um, ended my career as a lobbyist. Notably, one of my clients was the Redskins. We got the training camp moved to Virginia for the tax base. So that was exciting. Very exciting. And then I got divorced. (laughs) I was done with politics. (laughs) As I say, you have a very unusual career. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, it just goes to show you that getting into private investigation takes many varied paths. And so, how did you get to the licensed investigator piece? Well, seeing as I ended um, my political career, I mean, I honestly say something um, to a lot of people. Instead of electing those, drafting the laws, I now investigate those allegedly breaking the laws. Okay. To me, they're not that different. They're two scales of lady justice. And one side is defining the laws, and the other one is investigating if they are following those laws. Okay. And I, as I said, was um, supposed to be a prison warden, and uh, I was just a little too old for that career path when I decided to go back to my criminal justice love and uh, doing my background checks and such on the candidates I worked for. I discovered I had... uh, a real knack for scouring uh, Facebook and online media, going to the courts and getting records and fact-checking, um, and really fell in love with it, to be honest, and thought, well, let's see what happens. And I got my license in Richmond, Virginia, and then I moved to Charleston in 2019, where I started my business inquiry agency. Okay, did you work under another private investigator to get your license? How does that work? So, in Virginia, when I got licensed, um, one of the biggest difficulties for uh, new PIs, especially as a second career, is just getting hired. And you need that experience to even get your foot in the door. So, after I took my licensing through um, the class structure, 
in Virginia, I then decided to, or begged rather, my instructor <laughs> to allow me to internship for him. Okay. So then I continued to rack up hours, but at the time in Virginia, it's very kind of similar to the licensing here in the state of South Carolina. Um, I already had those hours if you count in the political work, which the board mm-hmm. does accept, just like they do for law enforcement and lawyers. Oh, wow. They would not accept that in California. Well, as long as you can prove the, you know, that you've done investigative work, like I said, background checks on candidates and, you know, worked well with lawyers and um, did, you know, a lot of uh, did some process service and things of that nature, then those hours uh, accounted to the three years experience. Yeah, here uh, in California, Unless you've been in law enforcement as an investigator, uh, you have to work under the supervision of a private investigator for three years or six thousand hours. So okay. They, yeah. yeah. So that's, I guess those, but yeah, it wasn't like directly under another PI. And then the mm-hmm. state of South Carolina is really odd. You pay three fifty per year, and whether you are just an investigator, you have to be licensed through a business. So when I first mm. moved here, I was working for a company just doing workers' comp. We didn't get along so well. So a month later, I was no longer <laughs> working for them. Okay. And I went ahead and started applying for other positions and then realized that um, I didn't get to keep my license. So meaning um, a month later, I got another job working for another detective uh, for infidelity cases Mm-hmm. And uh, SLED, which we're licensed under here in the state of South Carolina, said, well, right, well you'll have to pay 350 again, get fingerprinted again. I was like, what? Oh, wow. that was just 30 days ago. So that's what prompted me to begin my own um, business so that I could own my license and wanted to be kind of, um, wanted to have a foot in the door in all aspects. I haven't really found my exact niche, except for I love surveillance. Okay, so you were licensed in Virginia in 2016, then then in 2019 you got re-licensed in Charleston. Correct. So are you still licensed in Richmond as well? Um, Pending renewal. I plan to be again, yes. Yeah, good. I think that's, that's good because it is, does help. I think, to be licensed in more than one state, although I'm not, so I don't know why I'm saying that because I'm not licensed. I just work with private investigators in other states, but uh, being licensed helps too. So, so Sarah, it's really interesting to me that you went from, oh my gosh, be, wanting to be a warden in a privatized prison, applying to the New York Police Academy, being in politics, working in working actually in the House of Congress, and now you're doing surveillance. I don't get that connection. How did that happen? Um, well, I kind of was always kind of a, I don't know how to say it. I discovered my investigative nature around age 13, 14. Um, I was from a well-known family, uh, a debutante, uh, had uh, affluent parents, so I discovered I didn't really like being judged simply by their names, and I went to an all-girls Catholic German upbringing high school, and I started skipping school and shedding my uniform of sorts um, and then attending public high school (laughs) 
in Omaha where my father actually graduated Central High. Um, wow. Because I was enamored over the identity that I could take on without someone knowing who I was prior to meeting me. That makes sense. Interesting. So how did your I parents? Always, how did your parents feel about that? Oh, they didn't know. <laughs> oh, they didn't know. Okay. Do they know no, now? No, in fact, it's, <laughs> yeah, they know, yeah. All the cards that I took out when I was twelve and such. Yes, of course. Now they now they know, and they're like, oh, wait for those boys to get older. They're going to give you as much heartache as you gave us. <laughs> exactly right. That's uh, and you and how old are your boys now? Um, they are eleven, fifteen, and seventeen. Oh, you're right in the throes of teenagerdom. <laughs> yeah. They're all in, um, still in um, school. The oldest hasn't graduated yet. He's a senior now. So I still have, um, well, middle and two high school now. So how does your family feel about you doing, you being a surveillance operative? Because that seems to be your specialty. Um, I, my mom, I don't think, is terribly uh, ecstatic about it just because um, she's just never really enjoyed my choice in careers, especially um, politics. So she's an artist, an interior designer, and um, a very forward-thinking female um, to had her own businesses and such. But I guess there is that, you know, perceived notion that females may or may not be you know, well-groomed or a safety issue um, is one of the things that I undergo or have to undertake a lot. That's true. That's for sure. But you know what? It happens no matter who you are. You have to be aware of your safety. Right. Yeah. And right. I can, I can, but I can kind of see how you have adopted your mother's forward-thinking perspective because you're certainly forward-thinking. Yeah, I mean, my children are, like, constantly, I guess, embarrassed. I mean, I, mean, I when I PI or in just general in life, I guess, when I was born, pretty much well, go everywhere barefoot. I'm very, very um, um, strong feet, I guess one would say, over rocks and such. And so I've always been a tactile individual. So as I call my spidey senses. I really enjoy using all of my senses when I'm investigating and or I was just, like, kind of a tomboy. I always wanted to be in nature, climb trees. Um, hide in bushes. (laughs) I wasn't really enjoying uh, long, girly hair and being put in dresses. Okay. I'm right there with you, girl. (laughs) I'm right there with you. So let's let's talk about surveillance because I love this. As you know, um, we read your article in PI Magazine, who is, of course, one of our sponsors, a fabulous magazine uh, run by Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli, um, and you had an article called Sometimes the Best Man for Surveillance Isn't a Man, and I love the last comment, therefore in many cases deploying a female investigator may be just the best man for the job, so <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Let's, talk, let's talk about why it's important or why you think you see that uh, female investigators work well as in, as surveillance investigators. Well, I believe that the characteristics of a PI are very uh, much parallel to that of a female, especially a mom. Um, I believe that surveillance is very demanding, time-consuming, and physically and mentally exhausting. So the endurance of those hours are 
kind of parallel to those as a mom, multitasking, you know, having six kids, having to deal with homework, you know, all of those things while cooking dinner and such. So I found it very um, easy for me to go into what some would perceive as, you know, a chaotic or stressful environment and realize Mm -hmm. that um, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, And I also feel that female investigators can optimize their powerful weapons, which is their mind and their body. So I also feel that camouflage, you know, is often the best road to success, but um, in gathering information, and women most of the time don't even have to really have um, a uh, disguise on. As a female just alone, we're viewed un threatening and most people hardly would ever think that a female is a private investigator. That's true. That's very true. So, um, go ahead. No, and I just found that to be a huge plus, um, to, you know, we kind of depend on our ability to make ourselves invisible or inhabit the background of someone else's day. So I just already know it was really easy for me to, you know, roll out of bed in my pajamas, as I like to say, like I did in grade school, basically, um, and start the day, you know, no makeup and such. And then as the day progresses, you know, I guess I wear a lot of hats. So we'll, we'll discuss this in the eyes of workers' comp when I work surveillance uh, for longshoremen and such. So I will, throughout the day, expose more of Sarah um, in changing my clothing, um, you know, adding or taking off a sweatshirt. Um, I generally wear tennis skirts and golf shirts because of the looking material. And then it naturally parlays into my true identity. I drive a Volvo XC90, so I'm already a soccer mom. Okay. So it works really well for my persona to just be me, essentially, but as Mm -hmm. an investigator. Interesting. And I found that women can adopt to that well. And another advantage that most women have is they're multitaskers and surveillance definitely requires a lot of multitasking. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And then that female intuition uh, really helps a lot. We're, you know, seem to have more articulate, you know, senses that, you know, you can hear a baby crying (laughs) anywhere and everywhere, but I feel like that awareness really aids in our ability to do our job easier. Well, give me an example of how your feminine intuition kicked in on a case. Do you have one? Um, well, so due to um, the COVID outbreak, you know, majority of all of humankind in America, at least, were at home. So a lot of them were working remotely. And for that year, uh, I discovered how difficult it was to be in a neighborhood. You could, like, no longer just sit in a vehicle um, as an unknown vehicle on a street for more than three days like we used to be able to. Like, I Mm -hmm. PI in my third row, as I call it, my trunk. And I have uh, cop tent windows on my XC90. So I'm usually an empty car, which is never really perceived as a threat. But now Mm -hmm. that you have so many people that were at home... And even now, where we've kind of moved into that European hybrid remote work model, there are still so many people that are not normally at home that are still kind of trying to get into their role and their routine that has really uh, affected us as surveillance 
in investigations. So I've become a little more creative and have uh, explored now, instead of P.I. in in the shadows of sorts, um, being hidden in plain sight. So really diving into the pretext, recently I have adopted my baby doll from when I was a little girl and um, have her swaddled um, and use her as a prop where I walk around the neighborhood to do spot checks or sitting on um, a park bench or pretend nursing in the back row has, you know, really um, opened another door for an opportunity to not look suspicious. And, you know, how many times as a mom did you have to walk or drive even the baby <laughs> around the block, you know, and things of that nature. So I've really kind of moved into that role that has helped me immensely recently. Okay. Do you also put her in a stroller? Well, the stroller was, uh, right. So yeah, that took up too much room in my third row and a neighbor <laughs> is going to give me a baby thorn because my baby really does look so real that it's kind of creepy. <laughs> So um, I'm getting like a baby bajorn and I'm going to cut a hole in it for my um, covert uh, camera and I will be good to go. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. So what would you do if somebody stopped and wanted to look at your baby? Um, I would say that that it's COVID. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I'm trying to keep my child alive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But thank you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. What what, what if they just wanted to look? Well, honestly, uh, the head and everything. My mom got it from, like, uh, Paris, I think. And it's a tiny little baby, but um, it has a diaper and everything. It was really real. So I swaddle it. So, like, just a little bit of its head. And it literally smells like a baby, too. It's really weird. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that's I'm crazy. I'm okay them viewing the head, but usually I'm moving where I know to stop. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Interesting. So, so typically, uh, when you're – so, you're doing workers' comp surveillance. So, you're, you're trying to identify whether somebody is defrauding the system, essentially. Yeah, so I do, um, I have several contracts. Um, I cannot do more than one case a week. It's just so demanding um, time-wise and energy-wise. But uh, here in Charleston, we have huge, huge ports. Uh, and so longshoremen claims are huge. And not a lot of investigators like to investigate longshoremen because they are really tricky. And they usually, you know, allegedly been committing fraud for seven years, 10 years. Um, so they have a very uh, creative mindset if they happen to be, you know, committing alleged fraud. Um, it's fascinating to see the things that they can do and try to do to trick um, themselves and us. <laughs> Give me some so examples. Also- I'm sorry, Sarah. Give me some um, examples of that. Well, they will transfer all of their property into family members' names. They'll take their license plates and swap them around vehicles. Typically, they own around 20 vehicles. Um, Therefore, that the addresses and such of their primary residences have been transferred either to their children or other members of the family. Typically, you're checking, spot checking three to four addresses before you can actually locate them. Hmm. Um, they 
as I believe, um, and I've identified and started looking into this, they have spotters. So if one of the longshoremen's like super, super bested and um, like high up in the city chain, as they call it, a true longshoreman as opposed to a short man, they... Um, okay, wait really a minute. <laughs> What's the difference? I have no idea what this means. What's the difference? Well, so I also do, um, primarily my own business does infidelity cases, and um, I have discovered that the town that I live in is starting to become really, really small. So on um, a couple of my infidelity cases, I ran into some of the people that I was um, investigating on uh, oh. workers' comp cases. Uh-huh. So I befriended, not one that I investigated, but I befriended currently um, a longshoreman who was telling me about the verbiage and such, and they basically call a longshoreman a man that's, or a woman that's been vested, meaning they put in X amount of hours and they're going to retire with their six-figure salary. And okay. the little guys are the ones that haven't become the longshoremen where they've gotten the money vested. They call them shortmen. Okay. And they have a union, which is obviously, it's protected, like federal protected and maritime law. It's really fascinating how they have all these, like, loopholes. Um, but they, they have a union, which isn't really considered a union, I guess, to the standards of, like, the democratic, you know, ways and such. But they call the union an onion. <laughs> you call it a union, but we call it an onion, meaning that there's just layers upon layers of bureaucracy and things. And every time you uncover one layer, it reveals something new. That is fascinating. I had, I've never heard that before. I'm sure people that do those kind of cases know that, but I have never heard it. Sarah, we need to take a quick break, if you don't mind. Uh, we'll come right back because I want to get into this a, lot, a little more. Thank you. Thank you. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm talking today with Sarah Capelli. I think I said at the beginning she was from Richmond, Virginia, but she's not. She's from Charleston. Uh, And we're talking about uh, surveillance and workers' comp, and uh, we'll be talking also about infidelity cases. But Sarah specializes, interestingly enough, in surveillance, which is actually pretty unusual because that's not usually a special specialization for women. So welcome back, Sarah. Um, So we were just talking about the longshoremen um, and you running into connections in your own neighborhood. Um, I I know how that feels like because that happened to me a couple of times on criminal cases where it was a block over from my home or three, four blocks from my home. And it is, uh, you kind of sit up and take notice when that happens. Yes, I agree. Um, I've definitely had to take a lot more precautions um, currently, you know, with my three children and such and uh, become way more aware of how I'm perceived on a case or off a case. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so this is interesting about the longshoremen, about how they've set up systems to protect themselves through various layers of bureaucracy. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know about that. I haven't heard it before, but it is uh, good to know from an investigative standpoint. I'm sure uh, folks out there are interested in knowing that when they're doing surveillance or even background checks for that matter. So, yeah, in most of these contracts, however, you know, they want to keep us um, pretty much in the dark as much as possible because these are usually we. I get a lot of reworked cases and, you know, we're like the fifth investigator over the course of 10 years. Um, and just to keep us impartial, they really try to keep us all in the dark and or the company just thinks we're magicians and we can mm-hmm. read the future and know everything. <laughs> right. I don't know which is which that tests us and such. Um, but yeah, going out into uh, the environment when you are watching someone that could be hostile because, they also, they can be awarded their uh, claim, and if they were awarded the claim that says they can't work for the rest of their lives, then they are still going to be checked in on for a multitude of years, mm-hmm. just to make sure that they truly are still hurt. Um, another problem with the system is that longshoremen get to choose their own doctors and lawyers, so like normal mm-hmm. people with like AFLAC and such, they don't, right. we don't get to keep or, or, you know, choose our own doctors. Um, so I've identified, you know, majority of the, the doctor appointments that we, you know, pick up these guys at. Um, I've started making a list, and it turns out that the majority of them are very, uh, very shady. They've all either lost their licenses or are on the verge of. So whether or not that's the shadiness of Longshoreman or the shadiness of the business altogether in, in figuring out, you know, the loopholes and using it to their advantage. The lawyers and the doctors typically don't have the the best up-and-up standards. <laughs> Fascinating. So have you ever felt like you were in danger? Uh, yes. Um, 
I uh, have my concealed carry, and I did not have a gun here in South Carolina. Um, I just recently purchased the Brenna. It's the um, the gun that pe- uh, Capitol Hill Police use. Okay. Um, which I recently got because the environment has gotten a little, you know, different due to COVID, I believe, um, mm-hmm. with, you know, a lot more people out and about and or not out and about, you know, stir crazy and such. Uh, but the, yeah, the other day I was in an unsavory part of town and, um, like I said, I PI in my third row, in my trunk, and I usually put up a sun visor on my windshield and then I've got black tent windows. So no one can see me in the back. However, that day I had left my windows cracked in the front row and um, several gentlemen circled my vehicle, noticed that my window was down enough that they could probably, as he said, go get the Jimmy. <laughs> let's, wow. Let's this car. <laughs> and oh I'm in goodness. my third row and I didn't make my, most of the time we do a courtesy call to the police. Um, and I couldn't talk because then that would give away that I was in it. But so I realized real quickly that um, I, I needed a little better of a protection plan when my car almost got stolen with me in it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So what so what happened? Oh, so the uh, the Amazon um, delivery truck came by, <laughs> like the ice cream man. And oh everyone gosh. like ran over to it and dispersed. And I just freaking jumped in my front row and hightailed it out of there. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's really, uh, yeah, that's a close call. Yes, but I'm, you know, generally very aware. Uh, and now that um, I've identified more shady areas, taking ex- extra precautions. Um, I also, we have uh, laws here in South Carolina where GPS tracking is 100% legal, as well as unmanned cameras. So I do a lot of, um, in the nighttime, army rolling on the perimeter of properties and under vehicles. What does that mean? Um, so now, mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, so to place a GPS tracker, we place okay. it on the undercarriage of the vehicle. So okay. generally at times you you need to get under the vehicle to get a better uh, view of where there's solid metal. These vehicles these days are half of them are plastic. So you have to go further into the undercarriage to um, get a good magnet sized mm-hmm. uh, force. For that. And uh, so now I've started, when I have those types of cases, sharing my location with a friend that's up all night, or it can be my watcher beam. I have 911 already on my phone, if need be, just push send. Mm -hmm. Um, I carry now the weapon. Um, I have the smoke grenades. (laughs) You have what? They're like, uh, like smoke bombs. Uh, because essentially, if you're if you're doing something late at night, like placing a tracker for an infidelity case or removing one, I I don't need to have any confrontations. I just may need three extra seconds to get away mm-hmm. or to leave the area without confrontation. Okay. So I've uh, just stepped up my, you know, where is Sarah um, mode. Um, I uh, sometimes now carry a tracker on me, uh, just in just in case. Interesting. Well, you have you know you have to do that, and actually, it doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female. Those are all good uh, protections to put in place. 
Yeah, it's really important to have uh, what I call your bug out plan. <laughs> your bug out plan, <laughs> what, I love it. What happens when you got to get out and um, these are your only options? But generally, I'm really safe, really aware of my surroundings. Um, but there, you know, you never know, and I always prepare for the worst. So I'm really curious if you share these stories with your mother. Probably not, huh? Um. Yes and no. I know she's going to be listening to this. Um, my sons, <laughs> okay. my sons prefer my stories. I actually uh, will take my kids um, for spot checks on my own cases. You know, with my own business. I don't. You know, mm-hmm. obviously no contract with workers' comp, but infidelity and such. All three of my sons know how to place and remove a tracker. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, they they all know how to watch the tracker on the map. Um, they know how to, you know, use street view and things of that nature. I kind of sometimes put them to work um, as my assistants. Uh, so they enjoy the stories more than um, probably my mother. <laughs> and and what about your, what about their father? What do they think? What does he think of that? Um, their father is still in politics, so he still uh, owns a direct mail company. One of his partners is Sean Spicer. So I've actually been trying to work with him. Um, I think that background checks and opposition research for politicians should be done exclusively by private investigators. Because our resources and our databases are absolutely far none the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been trying to push towards, uh, getting that up. I think that would be a look, like an awesome merriment of my love politics and being an investigator. So ideally as he gets further and further up the food chain with his, uh, cases and races and such, um, ideally I'll have those opportunities to show how important or how beneficial it would be to have a licensed investigator doing these opposition research cases. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's a real need, as we know from the events over the past few years. So uh, I I totally agree with that. So uh, just curious about the the trackers. Um, I guess you've never, nobody's ever been caught either putting a tracker on or removing it. Is that right? Oh, no, yes. Uh, so I use the same tracker platform as Jim Nanos. I actually had a podcast um, just exclusively talking about GPS trackers. No, you can get, you can get caught. I've lost several, but uh, see, in the state of South Carolina, since they're legal, if a client finds it or the subject finds it, I can file a police report because that's considered a uh, personal property of my business. Mm-hmm. when it's uh, used in the course of a case with a permissible purpose. So if they don't return it to me, then um, I can file a police report. So I haven't lost many trackers in my life, um, but they occasionally do get found. I have become um, very proficient at it, so I have actually can remove and place trackers during the daylight, any time of the day, any place, any location, and I use a pretext of my lost dog, and I carry a dog leash and call out the dog's name, like, you know, five minutes or two minutes before I even get to the area of the vehicle 
just mm-hmm. so it looks and appears that I'm looking for a lost dog. So it would be, mm-hmm. you know, most people that would overhear that or locate my, you know, I kind of go up into a, a bush or something and really, you know, play it out. And then there would be no need for anyone to raise suspicion of me why I'd be, you know, down under a car or looking underneath a vehicle or things of that nature. I mean, it really worked so well. I had uh, the subject couple months back that came out and helped me look for my dog while I removed the tracker from her vehicle. <laughs> okay. And so how did I, okay, so how did you cover that up when you're taking it out off? That's crazy. Well, so if, if you're really proficient, you're trained really well to know the quadrants of the vehicle and I'm the one placing it, I'm the one removing it. So I'll text myself exact location. I never place the tracker anymore longer than my arm can reach. Um, so that I basically can just use that as my, uh, sample, you know, like if I know which side of the car I placed it, then I just need to, you know, put my arm back there and just feel it. And then you just slide it off. I mean, it is a strong magnet force, but you can slide it real quickly. And then I usually have a fan pack or something. You have a what? Like I wear like a fanny pack. um, Okay. When I do my my army rolling and things of that nature with my camera and mace and all that funness. So it's just, it, I, I find it very easy to place and take off. I mean, I kind of wish GPS trackers were not legal in the state of South Carolina because I feel like I do so much of it because majority of my cases we do, I always say, let's just put a tracker on, you know, two weeks. Let's, I, I watch it for one week, identify a pattern for the weekend, during the week, and then that way it saves the client money and me, my time, um, to identify the best dates, time frames for on-site surveillance. For sure. So now when this woman was helping you and you pulled the tracker off, how did you keep her from seeing it? She was helping me look for my lost dog. So she was over in a bush in her front oh, yard. Okay. 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 <laughs> I remained at the driveway uh, sidewalk area and did a reach around. <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. Well, I think the Earl best job <laughs> the best job is a woman for a man, yes. <laughs> the yeah, best and I mean a lot of people that no, me, no, no, that, like, if this is just comes naturally to me. Like, I love to drive, and I think I'm a very good driver. But, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, a lot of women are not good drivers. So I find, you know, when I am doing mobile surveillance and I'm, you know, following someone um, and I have, you know, erratic lane changes or speeding up, slowing down, I just, you know, you can look at people and they're just like, oh, she's a female driver. <laughs> right. So have you ever been busted on surveillance? Um, so I have been, my vehicle has been made a lot more than me. I was, um, physically made on a couple cases. And just most recently I was, I was made as uh, a person that they thought was investigating. Like I was a, a, a jealous wife. I was at a boat ramp <clears throat> and I was usually, I'm really, you know, covert and such, but to get the money shot, I had to get out from behind the tree, and I had my my large camera with me, and they could see that I was videoing. And they're like, oh, she's just videoing, you know, the water or whatever. But then the guys that were standing behind me, uh, way behind me, actually, they were getting ready to put their boat in on the ramp, 
were observing. And then my silliness, you know, as I'm walking by, I said, oh, are you guys going out? I was like, do you guys want an extra person to join you and I'll pay for, you know, the gas and such? And they found it quite awkward, not because I asked, but because they thought that I was, like, stalking my husband, and they were concerned that the husband might, like, beat them up. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And it turned out that one of those people happened to have been a longshoreman. And so that's <laughs> kind of where the two worlds collided for a second and oh, made wow. me realize, you know, how to be way aware. Like, I guess I was maybe a little ignorant in the decision-making that, when I wore the hat of longshoreman, you know, that's how I played that game. If I was working an infidelity case, then I wore a different hat and I, you know, behaved differently in an environment. I hadn't really thought about my own neighborhood, let alone to style the cases to actually cross paths. Yeah, I can see that. that. Yeah, so Sarah- it's like usually infidelity watching, you know affluent people. I, you know, was aware of my affluent, you know, environment, whereas working, you know, worker comp cases are typically in, you know, bad areas of town can be or out in the country. So my surveillance and uh, investigated uh, strategies changed. And that was uh, kind of silly of me to think that, like, none of those would ever collide. So do you so find... Learned- yeah, do you find... Um- more affluent neighborhoods being aware or the less affluent neighborhoods being aware? Or does it matter? Right. I'm going to say back in the day before COVID, it would have been reversed, like more affluent neighbors. They just, it's not that they're more aware. It's just, they know the routine. So like I know in a fluent neighborhood, usually around 9 a.m., all the stay-at-home moms are going to get in their cars and go to a play date, or they're going to walk the neighborhood. You know, I've kind of been able to time out the hours of the day. Um, in less affluent areas, they're not working as much right now, so it's mm-hmm. really unpredictable. Right. And really harder uh, for an investigator to not be noticed. I feel like everyone's on heightened awareness. So in an affluent neighborhood, I almost want to be known as just like, you know, a mom or someone in a Volvo because then I'll no longer be perceived as a threat because they're just like, oh, you know, I usually use the pretext that I'm hunting down, you know, a process server, hunting down um, a deadbeat dad. And they're always like, oh, really? What? You know, (laughs) yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and th- then that pretext had to change for the less affluent areas. I used to use repo uh, in Virginia, which would work perfectly, but not, you know, currently when people are losing everything. So definitely had, having to adapt to the pretext, and I definitely adapt my pretext to my environment as well. Well, Sarah, you've given a lot of really creative ideas, I'm sure, to our listeners who who happen to be BPIs, maybe the other people that listen that aren't private investigators may be a little unsettled by this conversation, but but uh, we're almost to the end of our time, and I wonder if you have some tips for somebody that wants to get into um, being a surveillance investigator, or particularly a female maybe that hasn't tried that before. What tips would you have for them? Well, um, 
certainly go, you know, start your classes. They're really not that, you know, financially strapping. I mean, you know, $200, $300 or so, but you can really learn a lot about what you're going to be doing. And I feel like, you know, that's a good start to decide if that's even something for you. Um, but being aware that where you take your classes is going to be hinging on your first-time experience. Uh, Do you have suggestions? Do you have suggestions where people could take classes? Well, so I, in Virginia, um, we didn't have many choices. The universities were full-time PI um, uh, businesses, and so then they would just do, like, they didn't try to work against each other. So, like, one would do the spring session, then another business would do the fall. And so I, the one that I wanted, I was going to have to wait, like, six months. So I ended up um, using... um, was insight investigations. I was uh, the only white female. <laughs> okay. okay. I was trained by an amazing um, African American instructor uh, who is absolutely. I think it was the best thing for me was to learn as a female, as essentially a minority, to think in the mindset as another minority perceived in this industry. Really helped me a lot, to be honest. Do you want to mention his name or not? Um, yes, uh, Alfred Brown, uh, love you and you will always be awesome. In fact, he <laughs> turned me on when I was interning for him, the habeas corpus. And I know that you do innocent project work. Mm-hmm. Correct. And I, I, uh, he was the first man that literally I had a case. It was, oh gosh, it was so awful, but I understood why, uh, the man was reaching out to us because, you know, even if they can't get out of prison, the opportunity to have something relooked at or reworked could give them more mobility within the prison itself and or allow them to work in the kitchen and things of that nature. So while the man was guilty, he was not given a fair trial in regards to his sentencing. But that was a really hard case. That man um, unfortunately killed his um his eight-month-old daughter in the arms of his wife. Um, And it was just chilling. And I remember crying, and my instructor was like, Sarah, if you can't handle this case, then you have no business being a PI. He's like, I know you're a mom, and I know this is, you know, heart-wrenching to see these, you know, photos of the baby and things of that nature and hear the 911 call. But your job is to be, you know, objective, uh, disinterested third party that has no bias. And I had mm-hmm. to go home for about 48 hours and really think really hard if that was um, a career that I could do in all yeah, aspects. Yeah, for sure. So, and, so uh, you said it's Alfred Brown, and, and what? who is he with? Insight Investigations in okay. Richmond, Virginia. Okay. I hope okay. I'm saying that right. I've, right. I've worked for so many happy people because that's another thing is um, even before they're being licensed uh, as an investigator, I just highly recommend, you know, calling just from the yellow page. Well, because we don't really have the yellow pages anymore, but calling any of your local PIs and just asking if you could, A, come in and talk to them or B, um, after you introduce yourself, maybe just offer to like answer the phones or do anything you possibly can to be around that environment to know if it's for you. And that helps you start getting your hours towards 
obtaining your license independently eventually. You have to um, get your foot in the I, door. That's, that's yeah, the key. And I'm currently recruiting uh, stay-at-home moms. Now, granted, I do not want um, and will not allow the PI moms of the Chris Butler scandal to happen to me, but um, I think you did that on a podcast like many years ago. Yes. He was a yes. corrupt PI. Yeah. Yes, from California. Uh, but I have correct. several moms that I am right now um, training uh, to see if they even have what it takes. I mean... You know, surveillance at all times, even at night for infidelity or whatever it be, you know, we're in our vehicle at times for eight hours. Mm-hmm. You know, so I pee in Tupperware. <laughs> Plus, you, know, you have to have no fear. The issue no, is you have to have no fear. Yeah. It's a really, like, it's a very arduous and boring and at times very unglamorous position and role. But I still really get that adrenaline rush and high upon, you know, hours upon hours, as I call it, extreme boredom, shattered by seconds of subject activity. Right. <laughs> and that so, alone still gives me that, like, adrenaline rush that I'm right. doing something for the good and uncovering the truth. And well, it drives this is, me every day. All right, Sarah. This says we're going to have to close, but just in case anybody okay. who is a... A mom who's interested in becoming a PI that might want to talk to Sarah, her website is www.inquiryagency.net. Is there anything else you'd like to offer? Do you want to give a phone number or anything like that? Um, No, it's on my website. They can um, just get on my website. It's very uh, easy to use. There's lots of pop-ups. Okay, very (laughs) good. I coded it myself, so... Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Sarah. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. And uh, for the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 